Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1941 Orson Welles classic Citizen Kane. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. It is finally Orson Welles week here uh, on Video Store. I was I was hoping at some point you would uh, you would give me an Orson Welles movie. I was excited it was Citizen Kane, and I'm excited for at some point in the future when we do a, a different Orson Welles movie because I have not. I don't have a lot of experience. Uh, with Orson Welles, I've, I've seen obviously I've seen Citizen Kane. In high school, I watched his Macbeth, um, just yeah. because we were reading Macbeth, and I was looking for a movie version. And our library had that. And then I think uh, maybe the only other thing I've seen him in, and this isn't a movie he made, but he's in, is he he has a very small part in one of my favorite movies, uh, A Man for All Seasons. He plays Cardinal Wolsey, uh, who dies at the beginning of the movie, but. Um, but I don't have a lot of Orson Welles experience uh, beyond Citizen Kane. Um, what is your history with this movie? This movie, you know, Sam, I have been trying to figure out when it was that the idea of watching movies, classic movies, kind of got into my head. And especially Orson Welles. And I can I can remember being excited about Citizen Kane being shown on TV. Um, I probably would have been in 10th grade, maybe 11th grade. And I had a good friend who was also kind of a movie buff. In fact, he's the one that kind of turned me on to movies. And I remember I had invited him over to the house to watch Citizen Kane with me. Um, and he didn't show up. It was <laughs> so my first experience of watching Kane was by myself, although I expect my friend to be there. And for some reason, I, I think it was watching Citizen Kane. And at the same time, Orson Welles was doing a a TV series that he filmed for the BBC or for ITV in Britain, uh, in which he introduced um, classic mysteries, half hour shows based on classic mysteries. And I remember my brother and, and me watching that together and just being just, I don't know, I just was transfixed by the whole Orson Welles persona. Um, there was just something about Welles that always um, registered for me. So I will say for for people my age, we can all, almost all of us can pinpoint the exact moment we watched Citizen Kane. And it was in the summer of 1998, because that's when the AFI, the first AFI list came out, the 100 Years, 100 Movies. And it was a two-night event, and I watched every second of it. I was, a, I was in college, I think. And when it got to the end and Citizen Kane was number one, I think a lot of people my age that week went out and sought out a copy of Citizen Kane to say, okay, I guess we need to watch this. Um, and, uh, so that's, I'm sure the first time I saw it, I've heard many versions of that story and that is absolutely my story. Um, and it was one of those where I think a lot of people will hear that, you know, oh, it's at the top of this list and they'll watch it and be disappointed. That was not my experience. I watched it and was kind of blown away, um, blown away way by it. So I know sometimes we talk about how lists like that are silly and they are, but they are helpful for raising the consciousness of people who otherwise wouldn't be aware of it. Otherwise, Citizen Kane to me would be this ghost story of like, oh, it's a title I've heard of. But because it was at the top of that list, it became appointment viewing. It's like, okay, then I, to be a responsible uh, film watcher, I need, to I need to go watch this thing. So. And especially, especially that film, which is which has such a long shadow, not only as a film, but really as a cultural event. I mean, what, you know, one of the interesting things about Kane, as you know, is, you can you end up talking about so many things when you end up talking about Citizen Kane. It's never just about Citizen Kane. It's the movie. It's always about Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst and 
the whole question of Wells's career. I mean, uh, the Mercury Theater. There's just so many things that kind of emanate from uh, from the film. It's like it's it's like a spoke at the middle of the wheel of American uh, cinema. Uh, cinema. So I'm curious when you watched it this week. Um, what was it like to watch it this week, and with what set of eyes did you watch it? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because, as I said last week before we went into this, I, I didn't want to go into it thinking it of as a, thinking of it as a monument of cinema. So I, I didn't want to look for the things I've always looked for before. So I went in at this time thinking about an angle that a lot of people don't talk about with this film, which is that before Wells made Kane, you know, he famously signed this contract with RKO to make three films, total control over them. And the question was, what film is he going? What's, what's he going to film? Well, Wells wrote an entire script and started doing shooting for our adaptation of Heart of Darkness, uh, and he had done Heart of Darkness uh, as a radio uh, play. So one of the lenses through which I watched Kane this time was Kane as an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Um, so I'm I'm both a Wellsian and a Conradian. Uh, and so the, the ways in which I see Cain is influenced by Heart of Darkness, both in its narrative structure and its theme, is, is, was very powerful. And so um, I actually ended up seeking out uh, articles, and I found a really good article from the early 70s that kind of developed the parallel in a lot of detail. But I think there's a lot of ways in which Cain is the film that Wells wasn't able to pull off with Heart of Darkness. But he got so far into Heart of Darkness, as I said, he had a script and he actually had done test shots. And one of the really, really interesting things about what he was going to do in Heart of Darkness was a completely subjective camera. Because uh, Heart of Darkness is, as you know, a first-person narrative. So Wells had this idea, um, this is seven or eight years before Lady in the Lake was actually filmed with a... Uh, with a subjective camera. Wells had an idea that the, the film would always be from Marlowe, the narrator's point of view. So if you think about what then happens in Kane, it's not exactly the same, but you've got Thompson, the, the reporter going out and getting all these angles, these perspectives on Kane, and he's always kind of kept in the shadows, right? You never really see his, his face. So it's close to a subjective point of view. Um, but I mean, that's just one thing. The other thing, of course, is Heart of Darkness famously at the end, Kurt says the horror, the horror, and Marlowe tries to figure out what does that mean? And well, we got the same deal, Rosebud. What, is it, what does it mean? And this notion that can you actually uh, account for an individual's life on the basis of those, of those last words? So those are some of the ways in which I was watching this film as a kind of remake or a kind of adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Well, I just got chills from that because I, I knew the Heart of Darkness part because uh, uh, in the... Um uh, the film, the documentary Hearts of Darkness about Apocalypse Now, which is based on Heart of Darkness, they have a little clip at the beginning of the radio broadcast of um, of Heart of Darkness that Orson Welles does, and they show a few drawings. And I've always wondered, you know, kind of what Welles's Heart of Darkness would have been like, because that's also a story that I love, um, and I and it's uh, I just was I'm just fascinated by that, and I've never thought about Kane through the lens of Heart of Darkness, but now I kind of want to go watch it. I want to go read Heart of Darkness again, and then I want to watch. Citizen Kane again and and think about think about that. 
Well, I mean, th th think about that. Think about the section of Kane in the newsreel where somebody denounces Kane as a communist, and then he denounces a fascist, and he says, "I'm an American." Well, you have the same thing, right? As Marlowe is journeying up the river to, to, to Kurtz, he gets all these, all you know. He was a he's a journalist. He's a great man. He's this. He's that. And so they're doing the kind of the same thing with Kane, like, and and also I think in a sense there's this implication that maybe Kane is kind of a hollow man, you know, just like the hollow men that surround surround Kurtz. Wow, I I love 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 that. Um, was were there other things that you noticed in this watch through that you hadn't seen before? Well, th okay, I, I, there's a couple trip. These are sort of trivial things, but maybe that's what you pick up on when you watch things uh, eight, tenth, or eleventh time. Um, one of my one of my consistent things about uh, interest in Orson Welles is the way in which he um, anticipated a lot of things that people weren't going to do until many years later. Um, so, for example, you mentioned not knowing other Wells films. Um, Othello is one of his great films. Uh, in fact, I just ordered the uh, the two the two disc uh, set from Criterion for me. And in Othello, he basically anticipates kind of the um, editing of, of of MTV videos. Um, in in Kane, one of the things I noticed is um, in the newsreel you see uh, Kane in um, uh, standing alongside Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Hitler, Mussolini. Um, well, I thought that was an innovation in 1982, and it was in uh, Woody Allen's Zellig. I had totally forgotten that Wells had all, had already done that. Um, and even I think this again, it's a small thing, but nobody in 1941 was not running credits before a film, and and Kane just opens with Citizen Kane, right? And then at the end, you get kind of his version of the trailer reel that you get, the, the little extras, right? It's where he introduces each of the players. And then the ultimate joke, Sam, the joke I love is he does not appear in, 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 as any of those players, even though it's his film debut. And then you get a written cast, right? You get the, and, and, and if you scroll down, you get Kane, Orson Welles. So I think it's like Welles's joke about everybody thinks I've got this enormous ego. Uh, and he gives himself the smallest possible billing. I mean, those are just those are just really kind of as I said, those are trivial little little things. But those are the things that I that I kind of picked up on this time. Little nuances. Well, I would say uh, the lens through which I watched this movie was actually not the one I intended to, but I'm so glad I did it this way. Um, as I was telling you uh, off air, uh, my, my plan was to do what you were saying, which is I was actually going to see like, could I watch this? divorced from thinking about mank could i watch this divorce from thinking about hearst and just be like this is just a movie and i just want to like watch it as that but we decided we we're going to watch it as a family so i put up the big projector we got everything ready to go and my wife was was on a call so we had to wait so my daughter and i were sitting there and i said well let's just turn on the commentary because i uh had this on dvd and um so i turned on the roger ebert commentary and my daughter and I were transfixed by this. My wife came in about 10 minutes later and just sat down and we watched the whole thing through the Ebert commentary. And then we watched the movie and the Ebert commentary in lots of ways is watching this movie through the eyes of Greg Tolan, the cinematographer. Mm -hmm. So much of what Ebert, and I didn't expect that from, from Ebert's commentary. I expected film history stuff, things like that, but I didn't expect a real breakdown of kind of how they did shots with an optical printer, like how they managed to use lighting and special lenses to create deep focus and things like this. And I, I watched um, a little, I watched about half the movie again this morning and I just kept seeing it through the, how do they, how did they pull this off? And 
Um, one of the things that I think is really uh, helpful to do if you're interested in those things, and I will say I, I have a, a short, brief career as an art teacher back about 20 years ago. And one of the things I would, when I was working with students, that I would say, like, if you really want to learn how to paint, one of the things that's helpful to do is to do studies of other paintings. Like, okay, if you, if you, you want to know how Vincent van Gogh painted, let's get a big blow up of a van Gogh painting and let's even take a portion of that painting and recreate it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not plagiarism. It's just a study. You're just trying to say, can I do what he did? Can I notice how the strokes worked, how the color is mixed in his case on the, um, on the canvas. And like you actually, if you do that, you actually learn how to do this. Well, um, now I, uh, back, uh, I think eight years ago, I did a little bit of version of this in a very amateurish way. Um, we, we made a retirement video for, uh, one of the longstanding members of our department, GW Carlson. And part of what I was tasked to do was to create a Citizen Kane parody. And I did at that time spend a lot of time watching and like, like reverse storyboarding out scenes be like okay so what are the cuts here what are the things um and i will say like uh, so the the scene that of that and again it's not good but the scene of that that i really love is the projection booth scene um, which is one of my favorite scenes in citizen kane but that's it's the only time i actually i ever put myself in something i needed to act in but it was fun to try to recreate those shots and the things you learn are things like where are the lights in a scene? I, I realize how often I don't pay attention to where the lights must be, but if you're trying to recreate a shot, you yep. actually are thinking, okay, I need to have the lights behind me for this. And that's going to create this look. Or where is the camera? How low to the ground does the camera need to be to create this shot? And I, so I watched so much of this movie through that lens. Um, and then having the information from Ebert about how they pulled, the, the tricks they needed to pull to, to make certain uh, certain shots work, and that was just fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I think that people talk about the Mankiewicz Wells um, collaboration on the screenplay, but I really think that the film is really talented. Wells uh, and Wells was always very generous in his praise of Talon. It you know talked about how much Talon really taught him about how to how to use the camera and uh yeah and and uh, you know talon was a great innovator himself as you've already mentioned deep focus and you know so wells would kind of have these ideas and talon would kind of help him put it into uh in, into action well that's actually what i want to talk about in terms of the the, the genius of talon and wells you know is one of the things that talon he asked to be on this film he wanted to be part of this because of the sort of uh, wonderkind reputation that Wells had and the fact that Wells had never made a movie. Mm. Uh, and one of the things, the stories that, that I heard uh, as I was sort of researching this is that Wells didn't really didn't know how, how a movie was made, didn't know what different people's roles were in making it. So he just would sort of start to do things and Tallinn would let him do it instead of saying like, well, this is how we all, always do it. This is the DP sets up the lights and does this or that. But Wells would do that and Tallinn would trying to get the rest of the crew to just let Wells do it because he wanted Wells to come with, come to him with ideas without worrying about how Tolan would pull it off because he thought, well, that's where we're going to get inventive. If, if it's people who already have done this, they know the limitations. It seems like what, what Tolan loved about Wells is Wells didn't know the limitations. So he would just say, can we do this? And Tolan would say, okay, let's figure out how to do that. And, 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 and um, it's one of my favorite thoughts in terms of innovation is like, um, uh, Chris Garrett and I often talk about the metaphor of like if you if you had a a, a 
a child who grew up alone on a desert island and you gave them certain tools, like you gave them a guitar and you didn't tell them what it was like because they had never heard a guitar before, what would they do with it? And maybe they would come up with something we had never imagined where if you show me a guitar, I think, well, this is, you strum it, you do this, this is how you make notes. But it's like that, like Wells was like a, like playing with the desert Island guitar. He didn't fully know what you couldn't, couldn't do. So they did things that, Another person would say, well, we just can't do that. And, but he, but Tallinn was excited because he said, well, let's figure out how to do that. And that was the stuff that sort of jumped off the screen to me in this. Well, I got to hit you with a little Wells trivia, Sam. Uh, a lot of people don't uh, aren't aware of this, but this is actually not the first film that Wells directed. Um, uh, he actually directed a film that was 1938 that was long lost called Too Much Johnson, which is the adaptation of an 18-something play by William Gillette. So, um, you, I mean, it's true that he never directed a Hollywood film, but he actually had, he actually had, you know, tr tried yeah. to spend a little bit of filmmaking. I, it has been recovered. I've actually never seen it, but it, it is around. Um, and John Hausman was in that one. Uh, Joseph Cotton was in that as well. So uh, if somebody were to come to you and say, you know, what is this movie about? I made a list of all the different things that I thought, oh, this movie's about this or it's about this. But if, if, if somebody were to ask you, what is Citizen Kane about? What would, your, what would your, your first answer be to that? My first answer would be it's about the mystery of human life. Doesn't sound too pretentious, right? It's about... <laughs> And, and and but that that but it's also but I guess connected with that though Sam is it's it's about I'll use another hundred dollar word it's about epistemology it's 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 about the desire to know and what it is what is it possible to know what is possible to know what can be known and how do we know things and of course it's also about um, perspectivism it's about the notion that uh, there is no single truth. Um, because the, 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 light, the world is complex. And so you, you try to build up truth by getting a whole point, different points of view, but maybe, maybe the truth isn't, can't be found. So I don't know. I guess I gave you three answers, but it all kind of adds up to me. It's the, it's, it's the mystery of human life. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things I had on my list is that a, as a historian, like to me, this is such a great movie about history and biography and how, fragile those things can be or how fractured those things can be um it reminded me of um a book that i and i don't I, this is a book that i read 20 years ago so i don't remember if it was good but i was transfixed by it because of its subject matter which is a 1983 uh biography of jd salinger by ian hamilton called in search of jd salinger and it was it ended up being a book about how in 1983, how impossible it is to write a biography of this person. So it was like the book was about how do you try to do, how do you try to write a biography of somebody who desperately doesn't want you to write a biography of them? Um, and so in that, the search became, you, you got the story, but the search also became the story. Um, mm -hmm. But what's interesting about Kane, and I think this is a real strong suit, is that I think the tendency would be to make Thompson, the, the reporter, a character, but he yeah. really is the viewer. Like, like, like Thompson almost, you rarely see his face. He's usually from behind and you hear him asking questions, but you don't know anything about who Thompson is other than he's a, somebody who's been given this job to do. And I actually really love that choice that there, there is no moments where you see Thompson like 
him having this introspective moment about like, what is he doing? Except for at the end, when the whole group of reporters is talking, Thompson seems to be pretty wise about the journey we've just been on, but still, you don't know anything about who Thompson is. And I really like that. Yeah, exactly. No, and I think you're right. He, he, yeah, he, he, st he stands in for the audience and that works really well. I mean, I, I, I would have a hard time describing what William Allen looks like, you know, it's like, I don't, I'm not sure you ever really get right. A full, <laughs> look at his, at his face so well and so, famously when people would ask him who he was he would turn around and say do i look familiar now <laughs> <laughs> but 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 he i mean he's he is like sitting behind somebody in a movie theater right i mean he's uh his his view of the people he's talking to is always the screen in front of you um another thing that that you brought up that i think is uh, is interesting uh, attached to this is that this is a movie about storytelling and this is a movie about memory and how um again how fragmented memory is and how we try to piece those things together and and how we and this is again i, I think circles back to history even when we piece it together we're still left with but is this the full picture you never feel like you have the full picture but you get so many versions i mean with the, the, the one of the other brilliant storytelling things about this is that other than the the first scenes where we see kane die the next thing we see is they just lay out, let's tell you the whole story of this person's life. There's a, a, in essence, there's nothing to spoil now. We know there's going to be this, but then it's like, okay, well, is that his, I mean, this is why the projection booth scene is so great. It's like, is that who Kane is? And he gets sent on, you know, let's try to find some other entry point into this. And it reminded me of, um, or it didn't remind me of, but it makes me think of another movie that I haven't seen in about 20 years that I'd love to see again, which is Rashomon. You know, a movie where people are, an event happens and people are telling stories. And um, I, I want to think about Kane through the lens of Rashomon a little bit. Because when I watch Rashomon, which is like 1950, I think maybe 1953, yeah, uh, from uh, Akira Kurosawa. Um, the cool thing about that is, is as everyone is telling their story, they're also telling you something about them. They're revealing things about themselves. They're even confessing things about themselves as they're telling this version of the story, which is usually showing them in a little bit better light, different light. I want to go back and watch Kane again and think about like, okay, why is Bernstein telling this? Like who is Bernstein in the stories he's telling? Like, is there, is he telling me something about Bernstein is Leland telling me something about Leland, you know, and how much, how much can I trust their versions of things? Um, you know, I think that that's a, it's a, it's a fun thing to dive into as you're thinking about this, because actually I find those characters are, those are my two favorite characters in the movie are Bernstein and Leland far and away. I mean, I, I, I love Wells's performance, but those are the two performances and the two characters that I'm the most deeply drawn to. Which also leads me to make a comment, uh, Sam, about another else aspect of the film that I think is really impressive. And that is the makeup. Because, because when you mention those characters along with Wells, I think about how incredibly well they do the aging process for for all of them they're at all they all seem quite realistic at the various ages at which, at which they show them um and so i and that that makes them interesting as well because you get the young bernstein and the old bernstein uh the voice is the same but the guy looks so much different it just it's, it's very uh engaging the way that works out yeah and it's almost like if you were to show somebody this movie without context and ask like which one is the real age of this person? Like, did, yeah. they, did they did they somehow find somebody young to to do the early parts? Because I actually believe, I believe like the middle age Kane the most somehow. Like that feels like that's who he that's like who he really is, um, yeah. and maybe because that's Kane sort of at the 
the peak of his powers, you know, before we get to the sort of the, the older Kane, um, there is something about, uh, the Kane who is giving the political speech seems like that's the age that Wells must be, but he's not. I mean, he's, he's the age of the young Kane. Well, mentioning the political speech, one more thing about the film, you asked things I hadn't seen before. And this one is just completely topical. Uh, and that is the scene after the night, the night of the election. And, uh, Bernstein is uh, standing with the printer trying to decide what headline they should run, right? And they got one headline, Kane wins. The other headline is fraud at the polls. So don't tell me there's no topicality in that respect. Well, that was so interesting because my wife made the comment um, halfway through. She's like, wow, this feels like such a 2020 movie. It feels like it's, and I felt the same way about Mank. There were definitely moments in Mank where I was, uh, when you have a, a table full of people sitting watching election results, I thought, man, we just went through this, you know? And so, so I thought that was, I thought that was really, really, uh, interesting how, yeah, just how 2020 it felt, how much, as much as there is the William Randolph Hearst of all of this, like how much this is a story of lots of people. There, there, there's lots of people you could point to. I mean, there, there's, my wife was pointing out, oh, there's versions of this that really are a Trump story too, you know, in, in kinds of ways, if you want to see it that way, which leads to um, a, a line you already brought up. And the um, one of the potential titles for this film was just the American, right? American, right. right. And, and American. Kane, yeah. And Kane says at least twice, he, he says who he is and he says, I am an American. And it's like, Man, I, Wells created maybe the most American story. I mean, it's a rags to riches story. It's a story about politics, ambition, power, media, journalism, truth, storytelling, memory, all of these things. And it, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> this this is not breaking any news, but it's great. It's really great. <laughs> I, I I had forgotten that in the newsreel scene when they, at the end of it, they actually uh, after the that they show the newsreel, and they start talking about it. They actually mention Hearst. They talk about how can you capture anybody's life, and they start. They they say a couple of famous 20th century folks, and one of them is actually Hearst. Hearst's name actually was by, as if to say this can't be about Hearst. We just right, because he lives in this world. Yeah, he's a totally different person. <laughs> right, right. Um, do uh, do you have favorite? So I mentioned I mentioned uh, Leland and Bernstein as as sort of characters that I'm particularly drawn to, or performances I'm particularly drawn to. Do you have because uh, this is such a rich uh, cast full of even characters in pretty small roles. Do you have people that you find yourself uh, drawn to? In I, lo- I love the little role of, I think it's Erskine Caldwell who plays Carter. And he's, he's only in a couple of, of, of scenes. And I, I love that performance. And, and there's a great story about him, actually. He was in a production in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when Wells was seven years old. Uh, and Wells went backstage to meet him. Uh, at the age of seven, and then later on hires him for the Mercury Radio Theater. But that that's one of the geniuses of Wells's films. And actually, he's very much like Preston Sturgis in that respect. They both have kind of this stable of actors who maybe are in only one or two scenes, but bring so much to that scene. And so I, I, I particularly love that performance. Um, it's... It, it's unfortunate that I really can't say that either of the women's performances stand out for me. Um, oh, really? I think Ruth Warwick is great. But I, I do, really but, I, but I, but I did want to mention Ruth Warwick because we haven't talked about one of the great montages in the film, which is the breakfast table scene. Uh, and, and you know, the way that Wells um, captures in about two and a half minutes, right? The whole decline of the relationship 
captures that whole notion of the t classic male who's more interested in doing his work than he is being domestic. I just think that's that's genius, and she plays against him really, really well. Yeah, and what's interesting is is that is a scene that uses you know montage and cutting and that that sort of I forget what they call that wipe that they where they where whenever whenever time sort of speeds up. Um, but so much of this movie uh, is really long shots. And mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I think this is probably Wells uh, stage background, right? This, this fact that we're going to let this scene play out and the idea of instead of cutting. So we're telling you as an audience member who, what to look at that as you watch this and, and if you pay attention to like how long shots are and because they have the deep focus, your, your eye is drawn to movement rather than the camera moving or, or the camera cutting to something uh i the number of scenes that go on for several minutes with elaborate camera moves but also just a um uh the way the frame is set up so that you have a person in the background coming to the foreground going back um and and he's telling you where to look but it's but in the in the way a stage director would right where you can see it all but he right. he's the, the what the action of the scene is moving your eye rather than the camera moving and so that's um, a very good point yeah that, that's a very good point sam and that, in that respect deep focus is a much more theatrical in a sense rather than cinematic way of filming because you have a lot more options as an audience as to where you look but those those long shots like the really great one and, and ebert's got a good comment about this when he's in thatcher's office and he and he and he goes back in those windows it's like a forced mm -hmm. perspective and he, it makes him look very small and, and and the longer the film goes on the more especially when they're, they're in xanadu you get these long shots like after he destroys susan uh susan's room right you get this long long shot down the corridor which kind of diminishes him and then the other thing uh, that i noticed you asked about this is um it uh, the shot of him in the Hall of Mirrors, in a sense, uh, which anticipates one of the great scenes in Lady from Shanghai later on in Wells's career. Uh, but, you know, you get all these multiplying um, canes that kind of suggest his fundamental egoism, that everything just kind of reflects back on him. Well, and it also speaks to the idea of, you know, if this is a question about who is Charlie Kane and you're getting all these different stories, and then he literally just shows you 15 canes on the screen and who is Kane? Is, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of a visual pun on reflection because he seems to be a man who is, in fact, not self-reflective. But all you get, all you get, are these surfaces being reflected back. I mean, he does have one moment of reflection when he says, to, when he says at one point to Thatcher, you know, if I, if I, and Bernstein, if I hadn't had a lot of money, uh, I might have been a really great man. Um, that's one of the few moments of the film where you actually see him kind of reflecting on himself. Uh, otherwise, he's very. Ex it's all about what he exudes rather than what he absorbs. Do you have others, other, I mean, this is a, a movie that's, that's just sort of full of scenes. And I think some of the, um, the reason that there's so much you can say about it is I actually do think the deep focus is part of that too, because, because your eye, he's not forcing you to look at something. You can watch it again and say in the same way, I remember a, 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 a sports writer I read in high school talked about, you know, you should watch a baseball game and just pick like pick a particular player, like pick the third baseman. And instead of watching the action of the ball, watch all the mm -hmm. things the third baseman does when somebody hits a double, like where are all the places he goes. Um, and in the same way you can watch Kane that way, you can say, okay, this time I'm only going to look at, I'm not going to look at the person who's talking. I'm only going to look at something else in the scene. And because it is, everything is shot in such a way that they're not forcing you to look at something. I feel like there's a lot more 
that you can do. It also puts a lot of onus on the filmmaker to fill that frame with things to look at too, because they're showing you, you can read everything. I mean, it's, it's really, really stunning in that way. And that's another very theatrical insight. I, can, I, when I t- take my students to a Shakespeare play. I'm saying, you know, watch what the other players on stage are doing when they're not, when they're not talking. Exactly. Yeah. So do you have other scenes or sequences that we haven't talked about that? Well, yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got two other things I want to talk about. One is um, in the news, in the, our newspaper last week, you know, they rerun the old peanuts cartoons and they reran one of my favorite ones where Linus is sitting in front of the TV and Lucy walks in and she says, what are you watching? And he says, uh, Oh, citizen Kane. I've never seen it before. And she says, Rosebud was the sled. Uh, and of course he goes, ah, but I, I, I want to say that what I love about the, the film is that the mystery is solved, but it's not a solution. Um, the fact that Rosebud was the sled means everything or it means nothing. Um, and, I just love that about the film, that it's a film where um, the, the mystery continues to exist for its own sake. Does that explain a lot about how Kane was? Maybe, maybe not. You just really don't know. But the thing that I noticed this time, uh, you know, we watched the film recently, Sam, where I said, you know, when we watched um, uh, The Lobster, that I had forgotten what exactly the last shot was. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say I'd forgotten what the last shot in Kane was, and I'd forgotten that it bookends, that you open with no trespassing and you close with no trespassing. And that, that to me, comes together with what I just said about Rosebud, right? That, that you know, you, you think there's a key, um, but maybe there isn't a key. Maybe the key doesn't exist. Maybe there's not an answer. And I, I just love the way the film reinforces that idea that you've just spent two hours trespassing but you actually haven't really gotten to the heart of anything. Well, and it's the idea that 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 you were, whether you were let in or you forced yourself in, you were only there for two hours. And again, this is a, I mean, whether it's an eight minute newsreel or a two hour movie, you still can't encapsulate everything. You still can't answer everything. Um, so, so, so it is nice to sort of end on that same shot and be like, okay, now, now we're forcing you out of this story you can think about what you saw and you can play with what you saw and you can in your mind revisit what you saw because you know, when this, when this movie came out there, you didn't always have access to see the movie again and again and again, you couldn't just hit play again and watch it. Right. That, that you have this access to this and now you need to process it, but that's all the access you get. Like there isn't more cane that you can see, but there, but you know, there's more to it. I mean, this man lived 70, 80 years. So, so I think that's really interesting too. Oh, I have one more question before we go, though. Um, if somebody loved this movie and they are, you know, and they're like, man, or Orson Welles, I'm in on this guy. What would be your next recommendation for an Orson Welles movie? Well, I'm going to surprise myself by, by recommending a movie that I actually was not able to bring myself to watch for many years, which is his next film, The Magnificent Ambersons, which was famously taken out of his hands. Uh, and 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 butchered, but I'll tell you what remains is still a great film. So if you want something that's kind of Citizen Kane like, uh, uh, you know, a classic Hollywood filmmaking style, I, I would say I would say go to go to Magnificent Ambersons. All right. Uh, so we are we are approaching the uh, the holidays, so we're going to take a, a week off, um, but we'll be back uh, in uh, right at the beginning, really of of uh, twenty twenty one. So, uh, what movie do you have for us for next time? 
Well, I'm going to continue the theme of adaptations of Heart of Darkness and uh, go back to the film that you mentioned at the beginning, and that is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Um, I have not revisited Apocalypse Now probably since the uh, documentary Hearts of Darkness came out, which is a, one of the best documentaries ever made, I think, about filmmaking. Um, and I will say this, that I want to watch the original release. Um, I have still never watched Apocalypse Now Redux with, uh, you know, the director's cut with 49 more minutes. That's not the film I want to talk about. Uh, people can watch it if they want, but I want to talk about the film in its original 1979 form. I'm glad you said that because I was actually going to say, let's not watch Redux. I've, I've seen it and as a fan of the film and as a fan of the documentary, Redux is very interesting because you get to see the French plantation scene, things like that. But I think you're right. I think I think watching the the original cut, um, I just watched Heart of Darkness a few or Hearts of Darkness a few weeks ago, so I will watch that again too. And I would actually say to folks, since we have two weeks here, if it's uh, Hearts of Darkness is not necessarily always easy to find. I don't know what's. Uh, I don't know if it's on a service right now or not. I had to buy it on Amazon, but um, but if you really if you if you love Apocalypse Now and you haven't seen Hearts of Darkness, the filmmaker's Apocalypse, I'm going to be watching both of those as we prepare for this episode. Yeah, it's great. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts on Citizen Kane for recommending this film. I hope that you have a wonderful Christmas and a happy New Year, and we will be back in 2021 to talk about Apocalypse Now in the video store.